Okay, we are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark cast iron building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight, as we always do, to those of you who are in the clubhouse for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight it is my honor and pleasure to welcome to the clubhouse Larry Tai, the author of Satchel, The Life and Times of an American Legend, published by Random House. Larry, welcome to the clubhouse. Thank you. So what I want to do is just talk for a little while and then turn it into a conversation. Um, I also want to start off by thanking Jay, um, who had no idea, I think... Uh, I mean, great, you can grab a chair here. I wanted to thank Jay for taking the time out, coming back after a busy day at work, and opening up the clubhouse for the session, and even giving away beer and projects. <laughs> and I want to say, you have to indulge me in one thing, which is, um, I'm here on a sort of crazy schedule, and the I'm doing, in the course of three days, four book talks on three different books. So if I end up answering any question about Satchel with an allusion to Superman or the Pullman Porters, you will have to excuse me. And I'm also doing, so I write books um, that are generally biographies and they're generally about people that I care about and I hope somebody else does. And they are people who I grew up with as my heroes. And the, the book I'm now researching is a biography of a guy who was a political hero of mine when I grew up, named Robert Kennedy. And I just, my last book was a biography on a um, uh, hero of mine named Superman, who I argue in the book is the longest lived hero, the most enduring hero of the last century. But whenever you write a book that is a biography, you're generally telling two stories in one. You're telling the story of the individual you're writing about, and you're using their life as a lens into some other, hopefully bigger story. And Satchel Page. I want to tell you, I sold the book to Random House, I think, based more than anything on the first line of my book proposal, which said, this is a biography of two American icons, Satchel Paige and Jim Crow. And Satchel Paige's life happened to mirror perfectly. Everybody, younger people, you know what Jim Crow, everybody knows what Jim Crow was? Yes? So Satchel Paige's life mirrored perfectly the career of Jim Crow in America. He was born in the year that Jim Crow laws first took effect in the state of Alabama. And his career spanned the entire history of Jim Crow. He was there for the opening up of baseball and of other institutions. So if he ever wanted the perfect life story to look at the story of race in America, and my theory was that nobody ever was going to sit down, if I told them I had a story that was a history of Jim Crow, and nobody would ever read it, and particularly no young kids were the ones I wanted to reach. But if you disguise your history of Jim Crow as a history of a great baseball player, maybe people would look at it. So I want to know, anybody, nobody here is old enough to have ever seen Satchel Page pitch a baseball? Anybody? He came back in 1965. Uh, uh, yes, you were in Kansas City? No, I was in Sorry, New York, but I don't give it. Well, great. So, this is the only audience I think I've ever, I've probably done 100 satchel talks, and I'm convinced that half the people who raise their hand generally are lying about it. But he also pitched to more fans over the history of his career because his career lasted so long, and because he pitched year round 
He pitched to more fans than any pitcher in the history of baseball. So that in fact, lots of people actually did see him. Since you didn't, I would love to take you with me tonight to three games that Satchel Page pitched that I think were representative of what made this guy a true American icon. And the first one was the first so-called professional game. Professional and it was the lowest level in the Negro Leagues that he ever pitched. Anybody have any idea what year Satchel Page started pitching baseball? 1933. Uh, that's a very good guess, and you're off by a handful of years. Any other guesses? 1920. Um, 1920 is good, so it's right in between. It was 1926. And where I want to take you with me is to a field that was extraordinarily green in the middle of summer in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And Satchel Page was pitching then for a team that was the most inappropriately named team ever in the history of baseball because it was called the Chattanooga White Sox. And it was an all-black Negro League team. It was called the White Sox. And this guy steps out onto the baseball field with, he stands six feet three tall. He's only 100 and about 40-something pounds and incredibly lanky. Imagine that tall and weighing that little. And his feet were so big that they had no regulation size cleats. So they had to take his shoes and basically nail some spikes on the bottom of his shoes. And he was a huge sight to be seen on that baseball field. To understand what it meant to him to make it to the Chattanooga team, I want to take it back just a little bit earlier. Anybody know where Satchel Page learned how to throw a baseball? Reform school. Reform school. Who said reform school? Great. So it was not just any reform school. It was a reform school with a name that, like the Chattanooga White Sox, was a really interesting name. Any idea what the name of the reform school was? I don't know. <laughs> it was called the Alabama Reform School for Juvenile Negro Lawbreakers. <laughs> and the very name of that school suggested what life was like in the Alabama that Satchel grew up in. Everything, every institution that was publicly uh, financed by anything was segregated. And this was a place, on the one hand, you hear a name like that and you think, this must have been a place that was miserable. That the, you know, a segregated institution and they had black kids in there and they must have treated them like hell. And that would have been true for most segregated institutions in the state of Alabama. Thankfully, this one was run by a guy who was very famous at Tuskegee at the time named Booker T. Washington. It was run by a guy named Booker T. Washington. Anybody know what... So there was in the world at that time, there were two theories of what blacks should do to get out of their miserable situation. And one was a guy named um, E.B. Du Bois. And he was the founder of the NAACP. And he had a theory that we want to topple the institutions of Jim Crow. Anybody know what Booker Washington believed? He wanted you to be... Agriculture trade. park, trade. Everybody that would trade. He wanted, that is, you're both right, and what he wanted was that his theory was we're never going to, in our lifetime, topple Jim Crow. So what we've got to do is we've got to learn to do one thing better than anybody else can do it. And on, in this particular reform school, it happened to be generally learning how to farm. Only Satchel Page, who ended up in reform school, the week that he turned... 12 years old, Satchel Page was there not because he had broken any laws. Satchel Page was in reform school essentially for one reason more than anything else, which was he was one of 12 children 
his dad spent more time, his dad called himself, he actually had business cards calling himself a landscaper, and a more appropriate title would have been an occasionally employed gardener. And it was Satchel's mother who, by taking in laundry, by cleaning white people's homes, who managed to make enough of a living to keep 12 kids fed. And Satchel was the wildest of those 12 kids, and he didn't go to school when he should have gone to school, and he messed with the truant officer often enough that he ends up at reform school. He goes in at age 12, he comes out five and a half years later, just before he's about to turn 18, six months before he's about to turn 18. And the only thing I want to leave you with in terms of his reform school experience is he came out with a brilliant quote years later which captured the, the spirit of what he did in reform school. He said, I traded five years of freedom to learn how to pitch a baseball. And he had a brilliant coach in reform school. And I said that Booker T. Washington was there to, do, to teach him to do what? Trade. A trade, or to do one thing better than anybody else could do. And he had taught, the school had taught Satchel how to do that. It wasn't how to milk cows or raise corn. It was how to pitch a baseball harder and faster and almost accurately than anybody did. And so this kid, not long after he gets out of reform school, ends up in 1926 at this team pitching for the Chicago White Sox. And he could, he would go out before every game and they would set up, his coach would set up a bunch of soda pop bottles at the behind home plate. And Satcher would go back to the pitcher's mound and he, by the end, was knocking down every one of those soda bottles. Even better, the trick that he would perform is there was a fence behind the um, behind home plate and there was a fence with a hole in it the size of a grapefruit. Can we steal one of your base, any, anyone that's not too valuable that I can borrow for a second? There you go. Great. So he would throw the baseball. Imagine how big a grapefruit, how big is a grapefruit? About that big. Now imagine, would you let me throw it? He got so that he could throw that baseball eight or nine times out of ten through the hole in that fence the size of a grapefruit. That's how good this guy was. He was also throwing it at speeds that had they had radar guns back then, I went back and watched. We have now all kinds of wonderful techniques to try to measure the speed of a pitch. And I took what tiny bit of footage there was on Satchel Page pitching the baseball at the very end of his career when his speed had slowed way down. And I gave it to some people at MIT who tried to do whatever analysis they do to figure out what speed it was. And he was, at the end of his life, when he was in his... 50s, he was pitching in the high 80s. My guess is in those early days, he was probably pitching at about 102, something like that. I mean, just incredibly hard. And one of his first games there, he managed to hit just about every batter to the point where the last batter that he hit was chasing him around the field. <laughs> they he was going to the newspaper the next day. They talked about how the fans were yelling, run for your life, Satchel, because they didn't think he was going to make it. At the end of his two years pitching for the Chattanooga White Sox, Satchel Page had lost, we can only document two games that he had lost. He was extraordinary. This was a kid who comes as this raw talent out of reform school, and by the end of 1927, after two years pitching in the lowest level of the Negro Leagues, his career takes off. And there was only one thing that stopped his career, which was taking off in those days meant taking off in this nether world what I call the shadow world of the Negro Leagues, which meant that you were pitching to small crowds 
although Satchel got the biggest crowds the Negro League ever had, for little money and with none of the notoriety that more extraordinary players, I mean, the more uh, lucky players who happened to have white skin were pitching to at that time. Game one was in what year again were we? 1926 is our first game. The second game that was momentous in Satchel's career was in 1948. Now, anybody, any baseball historians here who remember the summer of 1948 was an extraordinary summer in the American League. The tightest pennant race in the history of baseball to that point was going on involving four teams. Anybody remember who was involved in 48 in the pennant race? Red Sox. Indians. Red Sox, exactly. Red Sox and Indians. Who else? Yankees. Yank. The dreaded... Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> and one more team that no longer exists in a city that has good baseball. St. Louis Browns. Very good guess. Not the Senators. Connie Mack's team. Philadelphia. Philadelphia who? Philadelphia right. The, so four teams are involved in an extraordinary race, and one of those teams is Cleveland. And Cleveland's got a lot of stars back then. It's got a guy who I interviewed in a hotel room in New York, and I thought the guy was going to kick me out of the hotel room about 15 minutes into it, a guy named Bob Feller, in his most, his aged, cantankerous days. And Feller, at the end of the interview, about an hour and 45 minutes into it, I said, look, I've asked you every question I want. He was extraordinarily candid. This is Bob Feller, who when I initially called to set up the interview, hung up the phone on me, decided I didn't know enough, and he was going to hang up on me. So at the end of an hour and 45, I say, I've got to go, I'm going to catch a train, and I've asked you all my questions. And he says, oh no, you've got more time. And so I have to invent questions. And finally, after about two and a half hours, I said, look, I really have to go, and the... Um, and he said, I want to give you a picture, an autographed picture. I know, actually, what I said at that point was, I had an editor at Random House who signed the deal, and the editor-in-chief, as just a nice gesture, gave me his, he was excited about Satchel, and he gave me his autograph, um, he was a Brooklyn Dodger player, and I'm trying to think, this is a guy who grew up here, and he gave me his, could it have been Duke Snyder? He grew up in Who was the... Um, no, I'm saying not the, but Snyder oh. played for it. it could oh, have been, no, it was his card. Oh. So let's say it was his Duke Snyder card. And this guy giving me, the editor-in-chief, sends me his autographed Duke Snyder card. And I thought, you can never let an editor sort of have one up on you. So I said to Bob Feller, when we, I knew we were, he was being very gracious at the end. I said, I would love if you would sign something, you know, a picture um, to this editor, that would be really terrific. And I'll have one up on him. And his buddy who's in the room with us pulls out a pre-signed Bob Feller and gives it to me. And Feller rips that up and he signs, he writes a mini essay to my editor. Who, the good news was that the editor-in-chief at Random House owed me one. The bad news was he was fired about two weeks, I think, after the same time. So we're in 1948 and they've got Bob Feller. Who else did the 48 Indians have? Anybody remember? Lou Boudreau. That's, we're getting ahead of the story there. Lou Boudreau, who was batting Lou Boudreau, who was competing that summer for the batting crown with the haloed... Ted Williams. Ted Williams, exactly. Yeah. Yes. So they had an extraordinary team. They had Boudreau, they had um, Larry uh, Feller, Larry they had who else? Larry, Larry Doby. Larry Doby, the, the first black sign in the American League. They had Rosen. They had a, uh, Rosen. They had, a, they had a very good team, but they were 
still involved in a tight pant race that summer. They figured they were one player away. They needed some decisive player. So the owner of the Cleveland Indians back then was... Bill Beck. Bill Beck. Bill Beck calls on the telephone one day in July in 1948. He calls on the phone to Lou Boudreau, who's played a doubleheader the night before. And he says, Lou, come down to the ball field. He initially says, I want, I want you to take some batting practice, which seemed a little odd to the guy who's batting 400 and has been a player manager and just done a doubleheader the night before. And then when he gets down there, he says, I've got a player to show you. This could be the make or break difference. And he points over to the dugout, and Boudreau looks over there, and he says, all I see there is Satchel Page. And Satchel Page is at that point, how old was Satchel Page? That, that was the year, and that's very close. But Satchel Page was... 46. Well, the next day, Satchel Page was going to turn 42. Yeah, according to Tim Burns' documentary, it was whoever he had been toy, depends on who he was talking to. Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, that is, no offense, and I will deny it, the, um, <laughs> that is, you can get away with that kind of research on a TV show. <laughs> we found his, his birth certificate, which was sitting there all the time, in exactly where it ought to have been with the Department of Health in Mobile, Alabama, and Ken Burns did a brilliant documentary, but he should have looked for the birth certificate. But anyway, <laughs> Satchel played around with his age because that became part of the riddles that he could play with. So Satchel Page is there, and Boudreau says, Satchel Page used to be a great pitcher, but he's an old man. He's about to turn 42. And Beck says, I want you to just get up there and take some swings against Satchel. So it's an incredible scene. I want you to imagine you're in this enormous stadium. Anybody remember what the stadium was called? Municipal Stadium. Municipal Stadium. And that's seated something like 48,000. 80,000. Okay. An enormous stadium. And there are three people out there. There's a pitcher named Satchel Page. There's a batter named Lou Boudreau. And there's, excuse the expression, a wooden-legged... Bill Beck out there shagging the balls for what was going on. Well, the good news for Beck was that Boudreau didn't hit the 20 pitches. He didn't hit one out of the infield. He was popping them up. He was swinging and missing. Not one ball out of the infield. And Boudreau said at the end of this trial, he said one simple thing, which was, sign him, Bill. And the next day, on Satchel Page's 42nd birthday, he signs his first major league contract. So 1948, think what happened. Jackie was signed when? 47. Well, he was signed in 45 for the minors, and 47 comes up. So the summer after they signed Jackie, they bring up, they've already signed for the Cleveland Indians, uh, Larry Doby, and they bring up a guy who became Doby's roommate. Although Doby would say later that he roomed with Satchel's suitcase, because Satchel in every town had someone more interesting to stay <laughs> So he comes up in 1948, high tenant race, going at it with. The Athletics, the Red Sox, and the Yankees. And so by the end of the season, anybody remember what kind of stats Satchel put together for that half a season? Six and one, I think it was. Very good. Six and one record, which was the best record in the team and maybe baseball for that half of the season. An ERA of two four, something like that. You're you aren't plants in the audience, <laughs> This yeah. is what I deal with every day. Exactly. <laughs> very impressive. <laughs> and at the end of the season, when they were doing the voting for the American League Pitcher of the Year, I'm sorry, it was actually for the American League Rookie of the Year, Satchel Page gets a dozen votes, 12 votes by series four players, 
And Satchel's response to this is, I'm delighted by what the gentleman did, but I'm not quite sure what year they're talking about. <laughs> this is a guy who was, in fact, rookie of the year in 1926, and this is 1948. Comes up, has this extraordinary performance. So we've been in what years again? 19... Yeah, and the second year was 1948. So the one last year and the one last ball game I want to take you to was in the year that you saw, 1965. So there's a, a guy who's almost as much of a character as Bill Beck was. There is, by the way, a buddy of mine just wrote a, bi- a biography of Bill Beck. And the you should check out, if you're interested at all in baseball biographies, it's a really, it's a very, very good book. And Bill Beck was a huge character. But in 
was exactly a generation before that. Carly Strensky's father, who was a potato farmer somewhere, I think, on Long Island. Sag Harbor? Rich, yeah, Rich Sag Hampton. Oh, no, sorry, Rich Hampton. Rich Hampton. Yastrzemski's dad had pitched against Satchel when he was out doing his barnstorming. And Satchel Page was the only pitcher in the history of baseball who pitched against fathers and sons and grandsons. He was around long enough. He'd been from 1926 to 1965. You can imagine, there are a lot of people... That's what it was. In the, and he was a potato farmer? He was a potato yes. farmer. They all were. Potato farmers. Yes. You were, you were very, big fam- yes. very big family out there. So Yastrzemski gets a little bit uh, sentimental. That night when Satchel pitched that ball game, he did a number of things. One, he was about, I'm trying to remember whether he exactly doubled the age of, he was 59 years, two months and eight days, I think it was, and he broke by two years the record of the oldest player in the history of baseball. And there aren't many records we could say will never, ever be broken again. But every time somebody writes about Tim Wakefield being an old man and out there pitching, I've got to write a letter to the editor and say, (laughs) Satchel Page was an old man pitching. I mean, imagine at 59 years old, we thought that Roger Clemens, aided by whatever he might have been aided by, was a miracle guy going out there and pitching, you know, in his early 40s. And Satchel was 59 three innings gets him out. So it is so impressive that when he goes down to the dugout and he's got to get changed into his street clothes, somebody comes down and catches him and says, you've got to go back out to the ballpark. The entire ballpark, they turned off all the lights and everybody, you remember what they do at concerts where you flick a lighter or you light a match? Everybody did that and they sang that old gray mare in honor of Satchel Page. And he was incredibly touched. This is a guy whose seven kids were in the ballpark. He had kids late in life. And to go out there and show them, and he was showing them it took him 25 years to be allowed to pitch in baseball, and 25 years after that, he's out there doing it again. And that was an extraordinary evening for an extraordinary ball player. What I would like to do is just, before we turn it into a discussion or questions or whatever you want, I want to tell you one last thing about Satchel Page. I started out by saying this was a book about two American icons. It was Satchel and who? Jim Crow. And Jim Crow. (coughs) The best thing that I've ever read about capturing in a phrase what Satchel's career was all about and why we should give a damn about it a generation later in America was said, unfortunately, not by me, and I wish I could claim it. It was said by an ancient Negro League teammate of Satchel's. And this guy said it was Jackie Robinson who opened the door to the new reality in baseball. Jackie Robinson opened the door, but it was Satchel Paige who turned the key. Thank you, and let's uh, have a conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Sir? What did did Bob Feller say about Satchel's speech? Do you think that's Satchel's speech? So, Bob Feller, anybody here ever talked to Bob Feller? So, yeah. So Bob Feller, if you know Bob Feller or you've seen him on TV, getting Bob Feller to say something nice about anybody, anybody other than Bob Feller was an enormous achievement. Bob Feller, for two reasons, couldn't stop saying enough things that were nice about Satchel. I asked him the question about speed, and he said definitely over 100. And I'm convinced that Bob Feller said all these wonderful things about Satchel for, as I say, two reasons. One reason was because he believed them, and he thought Satchel was great. And the other was because 
Rothfeld got in a lot of trouble. What did he get in trouble? You remember? Actually, they thought he was a racist. Exactly. They thought he was a racist because he said things about Jackie Robinson that were very controversial when he said it. He said, this guy, you know, shouldn't be up here and whatever. And I'm convinced that years later, Bob Keller, like lots of people, I was a reporter initially in the state of Alabama when George Wallace was having his apology tour. When he went around and didn't want to go down in history as being the racist that he was, so he started going around and apologizing to black groups all over the state. You know, saying mea culpa if I had known or whatever, and I think Bob Keller was doing a little bit of both. And yet, when he started describing Satchel, Satchel was the kind of guy that if there was anybody, I, I'm I got to tell you a bias of mine. And my bias is that in 1945 or 1947, that Grant Turkey signed the wrong guy, and that as much as Jackie Robinson proved to be a star, that the guy who all the Negro leaguers wanted to be signed in was Satchel Page. Because Jackie Robinson, as great a ball player as he was, was a second string second baseman for the Kansas City Monarchs, who only got the start because the first string second baseman got injured. And he never, in all the things he said after he became famous, it was generally not a kind word about the Negro Leagues. He considered that a Bush League. And the Negro Leaguers wanted one of their own to be the one to break the barrier. And the guy who would have broken the barrier had he lived and not died of a broken heart, I think, was the Josh best hitter. Gibson. Josh Gibson would have done it. And Satchel Paige proved in the summer of 1948 that he had all that he had left, that he could still go out there and pitch a great game. And had he been the guy who was signed, all the crap that Jackie Robinson had to go through, that he took all those years, and that I think made him die a lot younger than Satchel Paige, Satchel knew how to take that. He had been pitching to more mixed audiences more mixed-race audiences over the years than anybody. And he had a way of charming even Bob Feller, who I think probably was a racist. There was no way you were Satchel Paige's teammate, and by the end of the season, didn't like the guy. You may not have trusted that he'd show up at a game sober, or there are other things. He was a huge character, but he deserved to break the barrier, and I'm sorry he didn't. Well, and you know why he didn't? You know why he didn't? What did, what did Brad well, Ricky want? He wanted, a, he wanted someone who was going to be able to handle the abuse he was taking. Jackie Robinson had gone to college, and he saw a lot of things in Jackie Robinson he thought... He did, but ironically, it's exactly what you said that, that didn't prove true. He couldn't handle He handled it by keeping quiet, but it was eating him up. It was giving him ulcers. And the guy who could have truly handled it was Satchel. But what Satchel didn't have was... Branch Rickey wanted somebody who was going to take orders. And when Branch Rickey said, you will keep your mouth shut, you won't talk back, he knew Satchel Page never, ever, ever kept his mouth shut. And he would have become a story. And I think he would have done it in a way that charmed people. And that said, this guy's not only a great ball player, but he was the most eloquent, he was the singly, I defy anybody here to ever go and look online, which you can probably do today, and find a ball player who was quoted in more different parts of newspapers than Satchel Page. They quote him in the economics pages with Satchel Page's advice on how to earn money. Or they quote him, he was a philosopher, he was eloquent, and he wasn't going to keep his mouth shut. And you're right, he wanted a, a, a college boy, and Satchel was not a college boy. Um, Bob Fellow, a lot of people have said... Say that again, I love the way you say that. Bob who? Bob Fellow. I've interviewed him. I've written a book about ah. the induction ceremony. Uh, and I and he had 
with the Negro Leaguers. And Satchel Page, I believe, paid tribute to him he when did. he was inducted because Bob Feller was a corporation and actually played uh, exhibition games after the season was over against the Negro Leaguers. And he did. And there is in this book, so there were two guys, two white major league ball players who realized that they could make a whole lot of money after the season by going out and barnstorming against not just any Negro League teams, but against Satchel Page's All-Stars, which is what they called them. And one was, who was it for poor fellow? Another great pitcher. Who? Dizzy Dean. Dizzy Dean. Dizzy so it was the Dizzy Dean All-Stars and the Bob Feller All-Stars. And he was, so there are two ways of looking at what Feller did. One is, he gave black players like Satchel an opportunity to earn a whole lot of money and to go around the country. And he even gave them a plane to go with. If you like Bob Feller, that's the interpretation. The other interpretation is that everything was segregated. After the games, they weren't. They never went out together and played a party. Bob Feller was... There were two things that are, are true about Bob Feller that I can say without any hesitation. One is, he always had a good word to say about himself. And the other is, he would do anything to earn a buck. And Bob Feller understood that the same way Satchel knew he could make money off this thing, Feller understood that. And Feller, at one point... They had, there was a falling out, and there was a feeling Feller maybe didn't pay them all that they were earned. But Feller never did anything unless it was a buck for him. But well, if you had an opportunity, you would have maybe liked this. You interviewed Barfo's wife. Uh, I wish I had. She was Annie. She yes. was, uh, in fact, she came and bought my book on Main Street in Cooperstown. Well, if I interviewed she her... Book, but well, the reason I bring no, up, please. she told me something no one ever told me, that the Hall of Fame caters to the Hall of Fame so much that they... For their spouses, they have activities planned. Yes. In other words, all the wives, this is Jane Clark, who's in charge. And that, that, that I thought was very interesting. I have it in my book. Well, it's very interesting. So since you're bringing up the Hall of Fame, anybody know what they tried to do with Satchel in the Hall of Fame? He was the first black ball player. Hold on one second. He was the first black ball player inducted to the Hall of Fame. The first black ball player inducted... Not because of his record in the major league, but because of his record in the legal league. And then a number followed after that. And where did they, so, where did they propose putting Satchel? Well, it was Ford Frick and um, the person who was in charge of the Hall of Fame. They wanted to put them in a separate room. And Satchel Page made a great comment. I'm, I, I'm not going in the back way. I was just as good as the white boys. So this is the brilliant thing that Major League Baseball comes up with this really brilliant scheme. We're going to say mea culpa and we're going to make up for half a century of segregating baseball by segregating the Hall of Fame and putting Satchel in a separate corridor. And on, on his behalf, exactly, on his behalf, lots of sports writers around the country, including primarily in New York, they did it effectively, said this is so outrageous that they reversed it he is right there. He's not only there in the center of the hall, but what's out front? The statue. Oh, that came later. Right. So, so what is it now? If you go to the Hall of Fame, what's the statue there? It's a statue. Uh, this happened in 2006 when they brought in all these uh, people who had played uh, Negro League baseball. I'm not going to say Negro Leagues because it went back before that. 16 players in 2006. 16 people associated with Negro League baseball were inducted. And that year, they... Built a special statue, and his daughter was at the uh, dedication. I was there, and I have it in my book. And they had the statue is of Satchel's famous pitching pose, which was yep. he kicked his leg so high up into the air that they used to say it blacked out the sky. And it was just, it's amazing. And when you go into, to me, 
one of the most extraordinary things, given the history of baseball, is to see Satchel out there in front of the Hall of Fame, which is where he belonged. And it's just the uh, justice happened only a century too late, or three quarters of a century. In the, uh, the mid 90s, you're a big baseball fan, especially after the strike. Certain things that stuck with you. One of them with me, I always wore my hat back, like Ken Griffey Jr. So my father and I were touring California. It just so happened that day, it was Bob Feller Autograph Day in like a tumbleweeds town, high desert, high desert mountain. So I went and got an Indian's hat earlier that day. We're in line, and he's like watching me. I couldn't figure it out. My hat was backwards. He was not happy about that. I bet he was You didn't say it? And we got up there, and he gave me a look like, young man, like, you know, respect the cap, respect the diamond, everything about it. But I turned it around. He signed it nicely. We told him we're all the way from New York. And um, that was my one Bob Feller story. It's a good story. <laughs> and you also said it was California. Everybody thinks that baseball was integrated in 1945 in the minors and 1947 in the majors. The fact is, integrated baseball was played in America in various places many decades before that, including in California with the California League, all of these guys like Satchel, the only way they could make a living, and it was true of white ball players as well, who were not making great salaries, is after the season was over, they would go and play in California, in the integrated California League, and then they would go further south, and they'd go to Latin America, and they would Puerto play Rico. in places like Puerto Rico, and Cuba, and Venezuela, and Mexican, Dominican Canada, Republic, Mexico and Mexico, Satchel, his only major injury in his whole career was playing in Mexico. But they would play all these places. So Satchel Paige had used to um, exaggerate, and he was famous for sort of his embellishments. But when he would say, I pitched 10,000 games and I won you know, this many, and the truth was, when you started adding up the number of years that he pitched, and the fact that he pitched two or three innings, generally every game that his team played, because people came out to see Satchel Paige pitch, and yeah, multiply that times 300 games a year in the year. Yes, sir. Yeah, I just thought about uh, Satchel uh, about four or five years ago. I go back to my hometown. I was born in a small, real small town in Puerto Rico called Guayama. Mm. Uh, and I go to Guayama, and for years I had been going there. I never went beyond where my family was and then go to San Juan because Guayama was like being back in the 1930s when this was 1980 and 90 and 2000. One day I decided to walk around, and sure enough, this this incredible old-fashioned ballpark that was built in the 1930s. There's some cows out there in the field. There's a, a, a closed fence, so I decided to just, you know, go through it and just, just look around. It's concrete, and I see this old man, and I started talking to him. I said, listen, I never knew that Guayama had a stadium, you know, like this. And he says, well... This is this is this is the places, and he told me about Satchel Page, and he told me that. And I remember my father always talking about Satchel Page, and about that. You know, he, he he was so much loved in this town, in the middle of nowhere. That was he weird. married a woman by the name of Maria from that town because the, the, these people began to sit down and give me this whole story about Satchel, like if he was a homeboy <laughs> from Guayama. I'm like in school, like you serious? This is all from this town, so. It, that his story is. I went to the. Brilliant. I went to the mountains just so I could feel what this guy must have been. So I get to, and I'm mispronounce it. Guayama. 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 So I get to Guayama, and the and I talk to there are old ball players around, and you find one person, and they send you to somebody else. And the story that you were describing about Maria is extraordinary for a couple of reasons. One is because 
her brother and sister-in-law live in the Bronx, and I end up spending a lot of time with them. And one of the many things that creates the legend of Satchel Paige, he marries this woman named Maria, who is um, a very young, very beautiful woman who lives in a very poor house that was on the way that Satchel had to walk to the ballpark, which is how he saw her. And the fascinating thing about him marrying her was that she was at the time his second wife. And the getting the records, so we were talking about records a while ago in terms of Satchel's age, getting the records in terms of the Guayama courthouse and who was married to whom. They didn't sign records, they signed in the Catholic Church right. the wedding date. And the in order for me to say definitively that Satchel Page was a bigamist, I had to have written records there. And I ended up finding the records, but I was helped because her brother said we all knew that he had another wife, and Satchel never had much intent of going back to the other wife, but it was a very sad story. She ended up going back to Puerto Rico and dying in a house fire, and it was a very um, it was a very sad story. But he had he played all around the world, and my guess is if I'd gone to enough other towns, I might have found other girlfriends or wives somewhere because this was Satchel Page. Just a comment about Bob Feller. Uh, sometimes it's overlooked that Bob Feller, Lawrence Bond, Monty Irvin, and a lot of other guys who played Major League Baseball fought in World War II to protect and defend our individual freedom here in America. Um, nobody would ever take that away from Bob Feller, and Bob Feller would never let you because in the course of every interview, he told me three World War II stories even though I didn't ask a question. He was brave, he fought... He was on a ship. I can't remember the whole story, but it's in the book. But he not only fought, he fought quite bravely. But part of, Bob, part of Satchel Page is the truth of his story. If you deny any piece of it, if you deny that he's a bigamist, I don't condemn him because he was a bigamist, but I also don't want to deny it because that was the reality. Part of Bob Fella's story is it doesn't take anything away from his war career and his brilliant pitching record to say he was an egotist and the almighty dollar mattered. And it's not, you know, in that generation growing up poor in Demeter, Iowa, wherever he grew up in. Demeter, Iowa. You know, earning a buck was a big thing. He wasn't making a lot of money playing baseball for the Indians, even though they won the World Series. The last time the Indians won the World Series was what year? 1948, the year we're talking about. That was the last time they did it. Wouldn't he, didn't Page pitch some game in like the early 30s? Some semi-pro league in California against Lefty Gomez, and turned out to be a great pitcher. He pitched. Yes, I mean I could tell you every great player that you've ever seen play baseball, including a young guy who came up to the Yankees right after he played Satchel out of the California League, named Joe DiMaggio. The famous telegram that whoever the coach was out there in that game. What, I'm trying to think of the name of the San Francisco team that DiMaggio played for. This is the great update. Would you all come with me? To <laughs> so, supposedly the telegram read, and I'm going to get it wrong because I wrote the book a while ago, but it basically said um, uh, one for three against Satchel, Joe's ready for the majors. And the, I mean, this was the standard, and that was on the one hand brilliant that, you know, Satchel Page, you play against him, and that's proving to the Yankees you're great. And on the other hand, the tragedy of that telegram. So Joe DiMaggio goes off to the majors, and Satchel is still out there in the Grapefruit League in California. And it just, it didn't quite strike people then because it was something unfair. <coughs> what was his best year statistically? Um, 
honestly, all the statistics are at the end of the book, and I would be lying if I remembered, if I pretended to remember. The best year, no question, in the majors was 1948, but the his first year. But he never quite equaled that again. The best year in the there are some people who say when he played in Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh had was the one city in America that had two great Negro League teams who were the anybody remember? And so Satchel's playing playing for one and the other greatest Negro League player ever, Josh Gibson is playing for the other. And they had these and some people say those were his best years where he was um, God, I'm, I'm going to blank on the guy's name. Gus Greenlee. He was was the owner of his team and one of the great characters ever in baseball anywhere. And the a numbers runner and, and a, uh, that was how the only way you could make enough money in Black America back then to earn enough to, to own a baseball team was often to do something illicit. The, I wrote a book about some men called Pullman Porters who worked in the railroad and the expression in the Black community through much of the first half century in America were the two best jobs a black man could get. Anybody know what the expression was? What were the two best jobs a black man could Portland have in America? Portman Porter was one. Portman Porter, very good. That's the yes. Um, Portman Porter was one, and it was another P word. It was Pullman or Postal. The Postal Service was the first agency of the government to hire African Americans, and they paid them well. They had work that was one of the only non backbreaking jobs. But the only better job and the only more esteemed job in black America back then than being Pullman or Postal was to be a ball player. Because on a Sunday afternoon in black America, what you did was everybody came out in their finest dress, and the event of a Sunday afternoon was to go to the great Negro League's ball game that was being pitched then. And the really great event was to go to one pitch by Satchel Paige where you could watch him. And that was where... that was. Churches would let out early, not because the minister was sympathetic to the congregation wanting to get to the ball game, because the minister wanted to get to the ball game, because that was where you wanted to be. Uh, did he pitch in the 48 series then? And also, was he the first uh, black pitcher? Yes, he, he pitched he very, very limited in the 48 series. And it was like the, he pitched in a game that didn't matter, and the, he forever resented uh, the fact that he didn't get to play more. And there were two theories on why he didn't. One was, that it was just mean and that they should have put him in there and it was dumb. And the other was that once batters had seen him go around the circuit once, that his effectiveness was waning at the end of the season and maybe he didn't deserve to. And who knows? But they ought to have let him pitch more in the World Series because he was Satchel Page. And he helped bring him there. Without a 6-1 and one record in the tightest pennant race in history, they wouldn't have been there. Great, let's do a couple more and then we'll give you your night back in the service. Uh, <laughs> If he had gotten into baseball early, do you think he was disciplined enough to remain a major league ball player? And I say that in reference to Jackie. One of the reasons Jackie was picked was Jackie wasn't going to do anything outside of baseball, which was going to make it difficult for all black players in baseball. And I don't think Satchel was disciplined enough. Um, good. So it's time to have disagreement. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was, he was um, for the right manager and for the right owner and Bill Beck was the right owner and Charlie Finley might have been the right owner in the later era. Understanding how to use Satchel, it's tough to say whether he was disciplined enough because when he finally made it to the majors, he was a man with set habits and he had lived a certain kind of world. In the world of Jim Crow, everything was so tightly prescribed. You can go in in Mobile, Alabama to this park, but you can't go into that park. You can't go into the library. Everything was so tightly prescribed that the only way you survived was partly by ignoring the rules 
and defying them the way Satchel did, and partly by figuring out a way to have enough internal strength to survive with it. And it's a long-winded way of saying that I think had he done it at a young age and had the right manager and had a reason to be disciplined to be able to play in the major leagues, he pitched brilliant baseball for every owner he pitched in in the Negro Leagues. And he might go out and carouse a bit at night, but he had enough talent and enough discipline to go out before a game and after a game throwing a baseball through a hole the size of a watermelon. If that's not discipline... But you're talking personal discipline. I'm talking things that people like Raymond also almost didn't get a job because he went out with a white one. These are the kind of things that Satchel would... Could Satchel handle himself off the ball? Yes. I'm saying that Satchel would have had an easier time handling himself than Jackie because he had grown up learning how to get by in Jim Crow America. And there was nobody... They came out to watch Satchel. When they would have the great East-West All-Star Games in Chicago with the best of black baseball, the stadium would fill up with half-whites in that ballpark. And they were coming out, as Time Magazine and the New York Times and everybody else wrote, they were coming out to see great base, uh, ball plays, great black ball plays, but they were coming out more than anything to see Satchel Page. He knew how to charm them. He would have had a different, totally different style than Jackie. Would have been more successful. I think so, but who knows. Yeah. Sorry, I spent the last few years interviewing Satchel's teammates from Miami and the guys that played with him during mm-hmm. his time in the International League. Um, Where did you all come from? Sorry. <laughs> so, um, my question to you is, and I read your book a few years ago, so like the details aren't in, in my head. Um, how close do you think he was to playing for the Phillies from the teammates that I know you talked to a few of his teammates from there? How close do you think? Because he, he was a f- very effective still in the AAA those three years that so he if played. Beck had been able to buy the Phillies? No. You, well, well the, the Miami Marlins were under the Philadelphia Phillies. Right. How much shot do you think that he had coming back up to the Phillies at that time? Because he was arguably their most effective pitcher for three years at the AAA level. Yes. I think by that time... Um, I think not much. I think that he was the... How old was he? I, I wrote... Mid-50s. Yeah, I mean, that would have been extraordinary, but it would have been... Um, it would have taken somebody like Vec or Finley who was willing to say it's partly about the pitching and partly about filling the stadium. And I'm glad in a way that he didn't because I would have hated to see him. He went out. You know, he, pitch, he pitches for the Indians, he pitches for the Browns, and he went out still in the majors a good pitcher, not never embarrassing himself, and I would have hated to see him. He might have had a shot at it, but the whether he would have really sustained himself for enough of a season, I don't think so. In my book, I compare him to Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth, his family couldn't handle him, had to put him in a, uh, a reform school, and that's where he learned to play baseball from his brother Matthias. It is. And, and the, Satchel Page, the same thing, and they're both carouses. What well, similarities, between, I think, between Babe There are, and I talk about that. They, they, I talk about the reform school thing, and I talk about the fact that they both had enormous appetites and everything from food to yep. women to mm-hmm. other things, and yet you can't know. I don't want to keep bringing it back to race except where it ought to keep going back to race. Babe Ruth didn't grow up with Jim Crow laws arguing against him, and it's just Babe Ruth got all the opportunities. So it's exactly like Babe Ruth except that Satchel didn't get to do all the things and make all the money and get all the fame that Babe Ruth did. And when I started writing this book, one of the things I said in my acknowledgments is that Babe Ruth has, and I don't remember what the number is, you know, 25 biographies written about him, and he deserves every one of them. And Satchel Page has one biography written about him, and actually three, 
Um, three, two of them were written by Satchel himself that were memoirs, and the other one written by Rabowski, who wrote a good book. But the point is, no Satchel... So yeah, which, yeah right, isn't that a kid's book or something? Whatever it is. Anyway, the, the deal is that... Um, it's a graphic novel. Thank you very much. Okay. There's somebody in this audience who knows the answer to every question. Great. So I think what we should do here is say, you get the last question. Yeah, this is not a question. The man from in, in In reference to your argument to, to have proof, I believe that Satchel would have been able to handle it. And the proof comes from a guy by the name of Victor Peyot, who we know he has big power. Mm-hmm. Who had the same attitude. Victor was one of the best players the Yankees had in the minor leagues. They kept on over, you know, uh, forgetting about him. He always used to get into these arguments, and the press used to put pressure on him, asking him, hey, how come you're not getting over there? He said, because I go out with white women. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, you know, well, I don't know why they have problems with me going to white women, because Billy Martin, who was their star, goes out with black women. He goes, well, how do you know that? He says, I traded, you know, to my wife, to my black He he made a joke out of everything. You know, going to a, a place to eat, he says, we don't serve niggas. He says, I don't want to eat a nigger. I want to eat, uh, you know, fried chicken. He disarmed them. And he disarmed them with that type of attitude, which is what I think they're trying to say. It, about. Is, what, it is what I'm trying to say. And he said there's one more difference. He said that the Yankees never signed him. Right, but one other difference. The One of the... Biggest taboos back then, as we all know, I'm, maybe the topic of the next book is the, I'm intrigued by um, uh, the story of race in America because I think it is the story of America. And one of the things I'm intrigued by is the story of intermarriage in America because that's one way of getting a lens into the race story. And Satchel Power and other people that have been mentioned here, you were talking about going out with white women and would that have washed. The fact is, Satchel Page never in his life that I ever knew went out with a white woman. And the um, and so he would not have had that extra taboo that was tough to overcome. And Satchel Page's wife, longest lasting wife, was one of the most charming and um, she was in the Saturday Night Live version of a church lady. She was the she was as pious as he was um, I mean he he never show up in a church if he didn't have to and she was there all the time and she would have been the perfect cover for him in terms of all of this stuff because she was just what people wanted to see whether they were in the black world or the white world we can argue about this forever because it didn't happen it didn't get a chance earlier I just think for if no other reason than for justice and for doing right for the Josh Gibson Josh Gibson, do you remember how Josh Gibson died? With lots of issues, drinking and lots of other things going on, and I'm convinced that he died of a broken heart, and that the that the broken heart meant that he was drinking because he wasn't getting an opportunity. He supposedly hit a home run. What did he do? Close to going out of Right, the, the furthest home run that was supposedly ever hit in Yankee Stadium, and they used to call him the Black Bay Bruce, which some people think didn't do justice to Josh because he was that good. And the idea that we never got to see this guy, Satchel at least lasted long enough, and I mean, never got to see Josh Gibson. It's just, it's a tragedy. Josh Gibson hit a home run in Puerto Rico in the old six foot Cobar Stadium, and he put it in the ocean on one bounce. And according to all the historians in Puerto Rico, they say that that is probably the longest home run ever hit. Well, I heard that it actually made it all the way. They did, a, they did a wonderful story that they told about Josh Gibson, which is, that he hit a home run that nobody, it never came down, nobody could ever see it. And the next day, 
a town somewhere far away, and I'm getting the story wrong. Oh, I know, I tell you. Was, uh, where was he? He went in Pittsburgh. Yeah. No, it never came down. The next day, they, they were playing a game in Philadelphia. Yeah, right. The ball came Six down. <laughs> and the umpire said, you're out. <laughs> Thank you very much. You better come around with me, too. To so let's wrap it up here. If anybody wants a book, I'll sign a book. And if not, you've been a great audience, and it's really been fun. Thank you. Thank you.